0: Got to work a bit early this morning, went into my office, and I normally have taken books home, about 40 or 50 books that I'm using for my sermon preparation, uh, but there are some that I left behind, and the ones that I leave behind are usually ones that are sermons that other people have preached. Because I, I, I understand that when you, when you read a sermon other people have preached, you can't see the text any other way than the way they saw it. So, I don't look at them first, I look at them last. And this morning, I went to Hebrews, and Dr. Kent Hughes, who's one of our members here, attends here, and he's a professor at Westminster, has preached through Hebrews. So, I, I wanted to see two things. First of all, had he preached on verse 10 on its own, or was it just me? And number two, had he seen anything I hadn't seen? Well, I didn't have time to read too much of it because the elders came in to pray, and, and uh, I thought I'd better not look as if I was still preparing. And, uh, <laughs> but what I did read was his introduction. His introduction was excellent, and uh, in his introduction, he refers to the great Russian author Leo Tolstoy. I remember when I was in Moscow, find, finding his house, seeing where he lived, and uh, I've read a lot of Tolstoy's literature. Leo Tolstoy professed to be a Christian, but he was not a Christian. He was one of those people who think they know a lot about Christianity. We had them then, we have them now, people who feel free to kind of pontificate about what God should do or shouldn't do, uh, what Christ should have done or not have done. Uh, He admired the Christ of the Sermon on the Mount, which I think only goes to show that he never understood the Sermon on the Mount but he did not admire the Christ of the cross or the Christ of the resurrection, and in particular, he did not admire Christ's claims to be the Son of God, which is why the Orthodox Church in Russia excommunicated him in 1901. But there is that about Jesus Christ which is admirable, admirable. And Tolstoy recognized that. The admirable bits are the bits like the bits of the Sermon on the Mount that people remember and can quote, and they are obviously the generosity and kindness and compassion of his life. Those are the things normally we isolate and we say, those are admirable, but when he's making these absolute claims or absolute statements, we don't like those so much. And it has been that way from the beginning. The author of this book is writing quite early on in the Christian story, and he has just said something quite remarkable. He has introduced the name of Jesus for the very first time in verse 9. No sooner has he introduced the name of Jesus than he introduces the fact that he has been crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Now, that may not mean much to you, but to other people of the writer's day, this first-century audience to which he is writing, that had profound significance. It's a very, very bold claim to make. Those who were coming from the Greek philosophical tradition, for example, who were listening to him speak would have found the idea of God or a God-man suffering… Incomprehensible. To somebody from a Roman background, Rome, built on pragmatism and sheer naked power, would have found the idea of a suffering God inconceivable. And to the Jews, the idea that God should become human and that in a human form should suffer would have been impossible to each of them, Greek, Roman, Jew, it would have been scandalous. How could God make His Son perfect through suffering? And even to a Christian, reading what, what the writer says there, bearing in mind all that the writer has said about the Son of God in the preceding chapter, would have made them, given them pause for thought. How could the one who is by very nature God, the Son. That's how he's introduced in in chapter 1, where the author makes a very clear, bold statement about the fundamental difference or divide between creator and creature, and says it is absolute, and that the Son belongs to the creator side of the equation that He has all of the nature and all of the names of God, that He is co-equal and co-eternal with God, that He is the stamp and the image of God, that He has all the power of God. Therefore, He is unchangeable, He is eternal, He is immortal, and so on. How can you say of the Son that He was made perfect through His sufferings? And, of course, the answer that the author gives us really from the beginning of verse 8, rather, of chapter 2 is that it's because He was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, He came down into our realm, our creaturely part of the realm. As human beings, He is called, as I said in verse 9, He is called by His purely human name, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. It's a reference to the incarnation, when the Son took on carne, flesh, He became enfleshed with our flesh. And so the author is now turning the spotlight from the eternal deity of the Son to the mortal humanity of Jesus. And he is saying that the eternal Son, in union with the humanity of Jesus, as one person who has a divine nature and a human nature, joined together without being obliterated in either way, the Son learned obedience. The Son was made perfect by suffering, by the experience of death. In fact, verse 9 tells us the suffering of death and that He did this for us. You notice that, he, that He might taste death for everyone. The everyone there is not spelt out. It will be in a moment in verse 10. But the, the everyone are men and women like you and I who are by nature helpless, we cannot help ourselves, are by nature enemies. We are allergic to God and are by nature sinners we have fallen short of the glory of God. So, the issue then that's raised in verse 10 is this, in what way could it be proper for God to do this and to act in this way? Hence the language we find there, for it was fitting. He is spelling out the suitability of the Son's suffering. And he does so in verse 10 from God's perspective. The Son's suffering was suitable. It was fitting from God's point of view, and we'll look at this in a moment. And that's bracketed in verse 18, the the end of this section, where he says not only is it fitting from God's point of view, but it's also fitting from our point of view because because he had human nature because he suffered in human nature, because he was just like us in his flesh, he can look us in the eye and can say to us, I know what you feel and I know what you're going through because I was mortal once too. I I lived a mortal life exposed to all the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as you do in your human experience. So the question that's raised here is, in what what sense can we say that the suffering of the Son of God, the suffering of Jesus, is in any way the right thing, the proper thing, the propitious thing, the fitting thing? Listen to what the author says, it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the issue is salvation. You can see that. That's the topic. And he points us, first of all, to the purpose, and then to the means, and then to the the initiative of this salvation. First of all, the purpose of salvation. What did Jesus suffer to do? He did this to bring many sons to glory. Now, technically, these words, bringing many sons to glory, can apply either to the Father or to the Son, or we might properly say they apply to the Trinity in the purpose that they have, the plan that they have to bring many sons into glory. Now, let's pause for a second on that word, Sons. We could translate it children, or we could translate it sons and daughters. There's a reason why, whenever it's referring to the people of God, it is translated in the masculine sons. Supposing, for example, they had put in there in the Greek sons and daughters. Well, there would have remained a suspicion right throughout Christian history that somehow or other the daughters were in a lesser or inferior position to the sons of God. Because in the ancient world, sons inherited the estate, daughters did not. They had to go out and marry someone in order to get anything. And so, the wonder of the wonders of the gospel is that what God has done for us in Christ is, men and women, is to make us sons of God. That's why we read, for example, in Galatians that we are all one in Christ Jesus There is neither male nor female, neither bond nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, but we are all one in Christ Jesus, sons of God. That's why it says in Ephesians 1 that all of us who are believers have been chosen before the foundation of the world, that God chose us to be the first fruits, to be saved by the setting apart, by the Spirit, and for believing the truth that's why it says that we are heirs together of life. That's why it says that all of us believers are priests and kings to God together. There is no demarcation. Even in heaven, we are all as the angels of God. We are all spirit beings with bodies that God has given to us, glorified bodies, uh, to live and work and serve God forever. God made humanity male and female. He has redeemed humanity male and female, and He has given to those redeemed humans, male and female, the status of sons and heirs to God. Now, there's a question here. It's in the text, really. If we had gone on to read, for example, in verse 11, we'll find this glorious statement that we'll look at another time, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And that's all of us here, brothers. I'm not going to say, girls, to you as you leave, brother, but, but you get the message. You get the point of what we're saying here. But it is amazing that we are related to Him. He is our elder brother. So, how can we say about Jesus on the one hand that He's our brother, and on the other hand that we are His sons? Because that's what the text is saying. Jesus was bringing many sons into glory. Every Christmas time, we read from Isaiah that one of the titles of the Lord Jesus is not only that he's a wonderful counselor, not only that he's a mighty God and a prince of peace, but also that he is the everlasting father. There is a fatherliness about God. There is the Father in the Godhead, but there is a fatherliness about God the Godhead. And the Lord Jesus is, the fa- is fatherly towards His children because they, they're brought to life by Him, actually. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 that He made us, He gave birth to us, He, he created us. We are His children, all of us, because He, he made us. In the beginning, Paul's great argument, you'll remember uh, in, in Acts when he's talking to that the pagan the pagan philosophers there on Mars Hill in in Athens, Paul's argument there is that God has from one man created all the people of the earth. All our distinctions, all the classifications of race or color or status or gender, all of our distinctions are in Christ resolved. We are one in Christ Jesus in that absolute sense. And when we say we are sons of God, we are not saying anything about our nature. We are not sons of God by nature. The whole argument of chapter 1 was that there is only one Son by nature, one who is of God from all eternity, one who is begotten in the eternal today, who is birthed by the Father from all ages. But we are sons of God because of His suffering to death. We are sons of God because God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. We are sons of God because God sent His Holy Spirit into our lives to bring us to life, to make us alive, to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our minds to grasp and our wills to respond to the grace of God as it's offered in the gospel. It is He who has sent His Holy Spirit into our hearts, the Spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out to God, Abba, Father. It is He who has promised that as the Son of God has gone, so we shall go with Him and enter into His glory. It is the Son of God who by His great power has come into the world that we the sons of men should become sons of God and should proceed, you notice, proceed to glory, not worldly glory, but the heavenly glory. You see, the word glory in the Bible is a word that denotes something that God has made. He made it as a vehicle to make Himself known. God is invisible. He makes creatures. They are very visible. All they can see are visible things and tangible things. So, God creates glory, something that creatures can see. The heavens declare the glory of God. God made this universe. He made it big and extensive and and amazing, and we cannot fathom the size of it in order that as we look at the universe and as we find out more about its size and its uh, its amazing greatness, we might bow before God and think that our God made this thing with a word. God made it with a word. It declares the glory of God. It is there to make us wonder at God. And when God appeared as fire, or when God appeared in the earthquake, or when God appeared at the burning bush, or when God appeared in the the flesh of Jesus of Nazareth, He made something by which you and I could get a grip on the invisible God. Isn't that an amazing thing? And He created not only the things we can see, but He created the things we cannot see. He created heaven. Heaven is a place where God has chosen to be very intimately present with those who are there, the angels and the redeemed. Glory. It's heavenly glory. Glory. which is at present hidden from our eyes, is not an ethereal, mystical, magical thing. It is weighty and solid and durable and eternal. Glory denotes something that is transcendent, superlative, infinite, excellent. In heaven there is the God of glory. In heaven there is the Christ of glory. In heaven, there is the most blessed and the most bountiful and the most beautiful place that God ever made. And in heaven, there is all joy and delight and honor and dignity and satisfaction and munificence and magnificence. Heaven, glory. That is the thing that He has prepared for those who love us. I love Him. And He has determined that He will bring us to glory. He has determined that we would share in that glory. The Son said to His disciples, I go to prepare a place for you and will come again and take you to be with Me in that place. There are mansions of glory. We are chosen for glory. We are being prepared for glory. And the Son of God works in us by the Spirit to call us out of this realm into glory. And when we die, He gives us an abundant entrance into the glory of His heavenly kingdom. In World War II, my grandfather had to sometimes, he was a manager, but he had to sometimes take his turn at the, uh, the factory, uh, uh, overnight doing a kind of watchman, overnight in case the factory was hit by firebombs. And one night he was going out to work one, su- one evening, and on his way to work he met a neighbor who said to him, Willie, it looks as if we may have a bad raid this evening. And my grandfather said to this man, sudden death, sudden glory. And so it was to be sudden death, sudden glory. Because for the child of God, death is the transition point into glory. We close our eyes here, we open our eyes in glory instantaneously. And in the glory of heaven, in the glory of the Father's presence, in the glory of God, all of the doubts and the distrust and depression and discouragement And sickness and illness and prolonged pain and separation and consternation that have gripped us in this veil of tears in an instant are irradiated by the glory of God. And this is the great purpose of salvation. It is to bring many, many sons to glory. But you notice secondly the means of salvation. The means of salvation is this one, this one who is described as the founder, various English translations of the word uh, in the Greek here, uh, founder, pioneer, author, captain of our salvation. The word itself means a variety of things, and I think we're meant to embrace them all. He's one who does something for the first time. He's, it's about someone who goes ahead. It's about someone who leads us on. And all of those things are captured, I think, in the word pioneer of salvation. It's the one I, uh, I still come back to, the pioneer of our salvation or the author of our salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, suffered death so that these sons might inherit real salvation. He is the means of this salvation. And He's eminently qualified to lead us to salvation. In the Old Testament, the the sun is described or or foreshadowed by that cloud and pillar of fire uh, that led the children of Israel, you remember, in the desert. He went before them to the Red Sea. The Red Sea was divided. They walked across on dry land to the other side. He led them through the desert. Eventually, he led them over the Jordan into the promised land. He's the leader. It's foreshadowed by the the person that Joshua met when he was preparing to fight the battle of Jericho. And this one came towards him, and Joshua said, Who are you? Who are you? And whose side are you on? And he said, I'm bigger than sides. I am the captain of the Lord's hosts, the armies of Israel. Isaiah leads us to think about the coming Messiah in chapter 55 as the leader and commander of the peoples. He has gone before us. He is opening up a way for us, and He is leading us on that way. He Himself is that way. And it says about Him, uh, our leader, our pioneer, that He was made perfect for the task. He was made perfect for the task. Now, when you read that, you're not to think of the Son we have described in chapter 1, but of the One who's just been introduced to us in verse 9, Jesus, in His humanity. In His humanity, this one is made perfect through suffering. In what sense? Well, because He faced down temptation. Temptation of every kind. Temptation from every quarter. Temptation on the cross, before the cross. Temptation that followed Him right through His life. The temptation came from Satan The temptation came from His friends who tried to keep Him from going to the cross. It came from His adversaries who wanted to stone Him so He didn't go to the cross. He was tempted in every way you and I are tempted, yet without sin. He faced down temptation. He suffered death. He took on our mortality so that He might suffer death that he might feel our physical pain, the pain of physical affliction, the pain of suffering, and that he might experience what we are all going to experience unless Jesus comes back again, physical death, mortality. He takes that on himself and does it so that he might free many sons to go to glory. And thirdly, because of his own experience of human suffering in a body like ours, while he's able to understand, we go to him and we say to him, I'm not feeling well today, he says to us, I know what it's like not to feel well. I'm in pain today, the pain of loss, the pain of sickness. He says to us, I know what it is to lose someone. I'm going to a funeral today, he says to us, I've been to funerals. And He does that so that He can approach us and be with us all the way along the road. He is the pioneer of salvation, and He's made perfect through suffering. He came under, you remember, He is the one who gave the law. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus goes up onto the mountain and He gathers His twelve men around Him, prefiguring the, the gathering of the twelve tribes of Israel around Mount Sinai. Jesus does not assume the role of Moses, the great law giver, because Moses got the law secondhand from God. Jesus, on that mountain, He takes the place of Jehovah. He says, you've heard that it was written, I say to you. And whereas Aaron said, may the Lord bless you, Jesus says, bless you. He is the one who gave the law, and yet in His his humanity, He was made under the law. He grew in wisdom and stature. He grew in in the grasp of the law and in the obedience to the law. He learned obedience through the things that He suffered. So, He points to Himself and He says, learn of Me, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me. This is what a human being can do. With the help of the Holy Spirit, they can be obedient. He goes ahead of us in obedience. He goes before us in suffering, even though there is a distinct and wonderful part that's only His in suffering, because He is the sin-bearer. Nonetheless, He also, like us, suffered for righteousness' sake. And Peter says, Christ suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow in His steps. Later on, the writer to the Hebrews will say, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Not only does He go before us in obedience and go before us in suffering, He goes before us into glory. He has shown us by His resurrection, death is not the end of our course. It's a transition point into a new, better, and more permanent reality. He has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He is the means of salvation. Our glorious leader, the pioneer, claims our praise and bids us to follow Him, He who is made perfect through suffering. So, we've seen the purpose of salvation is to bring many sons to glory. The means of salvation is our great pioneer, Jesus. But behind it all, this is wonderful, behind this all is the initiative in salvation, and the initiative lies in the Godhead. That's why the formula, it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist. He's thinking about God's majesty, God's power, God's wisdom, God's justice, God's truth, God keeping His threats as well as His promises. Everything that is involved in being God, he says, everything involved in being God makes it fitting, makes it appropriate. It's a matter of propriety that He from whom and by whom all things exist should make the founder of our salvation, perfect through suffering. That's an amazing thing, you see. When we think of Jesus, or we think of the Son of God before He became incarnate in Jesus, we think of Him, there is nothing, no, no way that He can learn anything. Learning involves progress, movement. There is no progress or movement within God. He is perfect being, perfect in act. That's the way He is. But in the humanity of Jesus, He is learning something. and So we learn that the purpose of God, fronted by the Father who is the principle within the Godhead, it became or it was fitting that for God who is the first cause and last end of all things, that He should fulfill the design that the triune God have had from eternity, that they would bring many sons to glory, you men and women, brothers and sisters, to glory, that the eternal Son should descend to take on humanity, become lower than the angels, suffer for us, die for us, rise for us. It was agreeable. It was becoming the perfections of God's nature, wisdom, veracity, justice, and grace, and mercy. It was fitting because of the qualities of who God is, the properties of who God is. I want you to notice the connection between 9 and 10 in this this passage when he refers in verse 9 at the very end, by the grace of God. He's pointing us Inside, inward, innerward, innerwards, towards the inside of God. What is true of God inside is his grace. The very idea that it was a quality of God that led to the suffering of death by Jesus would have rocked and shocked the first century world. To think of a crucified Lord would have scandalized many people. It was madness to the Romans. It would have been offensive to the Jews. It would have been inappropriate. To the pagan, but God counted it entirely fitting for him to do what he had to do for us, fitting by the grace of God. Because it was man who rebelled, it must be a man who undoes the rebellion. that flesh and blood that did an Adam fail should in the second Adam fight and prevail. It was fitting not that God should intervene and by some magic trick change everything or obliterate everything and start again, but that one of us genetically connected to all of us should come into the world and obey where we disobey. Be holy where we are unholy. Be righteous where we are unrighteous. It was fitting. And it was fitting that the Son was of the Father, should be the one to become the Son of Man. Eternally qualified as He was, as God the Son. And then, qualified as the man Christ Jesus by his obedience to the Father, he comes to bring us to God. He comes to bring us to God. Because, apart from this, you see, God is a consuming fire, says Hebrews. The God of the Bible is allergic to sin. The God of the Bible, when he turns towards sin and sinners, He does so with the burning red-hot fire of His holiness that will burn up and destroy everything and everyone were it not for the grace of God in our great pioneer. And when we say that God is just, we're not saying that there is something incidental or accidental in God. Just is what He is. When we say God is righteous, that is not an appendage to His character, that is what He is. So, how can a God who is both just and righteous pardon sin and remain just and holy and righteous? The answer of the Bible is that He Himself should act to take on humanity in Christ, that in humanity in Christ He should take the punishment that humans deserved, and that in the humanity of Christ, that He should bring us to God. Now, this is the free gift of God. I say to you this morning this, this salvation that we talk about is not a list of rules and regulations that we impose upon you and say that you must keep these. This great salvation, this going to glory, this being our great hope that we spoke about in the opening prayer is not a matter of something you do, something you could do, something you must do. When we say it is a matter of grace, we are saying it is a matter of a free gift, a free gift to be received. Personally, in a moment, we're going to, we're going to reenact that as we take bread and wine and take them ourselves, and we, we apply them to ourselves, and we eat the bread, and we drink the cup. So, Jesus Christ is offered to you in the gospel— You receive Him. You make Him your own. And by the great miracle of God's grace, you become a son of God and an heir of glory, an heir and a joint heir with Christ of the glory that God has prepared. Let me end with this. The great gospel declaration is that God has made a way in which all sin for His people is punished, all grace towards His people is exercised, all His people as sinners are saved, and all His justice is exalted through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by Your help, the help of the Spirit, through the Word of God, that we might be convinced about this one wonderful plan, this wonderful action, and this wonderful source. We thank You that You have planned and deliberated and determined that You would in Your Son bring many sons to glory. Pray that this morning each of us might be convinced that we are indeed children of God. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.